0: You know, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, uh, we just uh, thank you so very, very, very much for your love, for your mercy, for your uh, grace at work in our lives. Now speak to us, I pray. Encourage us, strengthen us, fill us with joy as we uh, listen to you and uh, think about our life together. Amen. So we are irreducibly Future-oriented beings. Here's what I mean about that, by that. We're always thinking about the future. What we think about the future has a massive impact on on how we live in the in the present, in the now. So even now you're you're probably thinking about the future. You're thinking How long is Mark going to speak? It's really hot. When can I get out of here? When am I going to get my next cup of coffee? If you're one of the musicians, you might be thinking, oh, what's the key of the song we're going to do when Mark finishes up? What's going to happen? And maybe you're thinking, as you saw the photo of Oliver and I, Wow, you know, I've really got to get on and plan our family holiday for after Christmas because everything's probably being booked up. And, you know, so we're, we're always thinking about the future. Now, it might be five minutes down the track. It might be five years. It might be 10 years. That's what we do. Because we always think about the future and what we think about the future has a big impact on our present, uh, promises matter enormously. OK, promises matter enormously because promises are a commitment in our world, which is really all about relationships. Promises are a commitment that one person will make to another to ensure that the future has a particular shape as far as it's up to them to accomplish that, right? So if I promise you that I'm going to finish in 20 minutes, I'm making commitment that in 20 minutes I'll stop speaking and you'll be able to get coffee, Right? I mean, I'm not making that promise, just to be clear, but were I to make that promise, that would be the effect, right? The, the Possibly one of the most important promises or, or examples of this kind of promise-making that shapes us are the promises that we exchange when we get married. And the, even if you yourself haven't been married, you, you've probably been to weddings, and you'll know that at the very center of a wedding, of a marriage, is this exchange-making uh, uh, of promises, that you will love the other person to the exclusion of everybody else, um, for better, for worse, and sickness and health, uh, for richer, for poorer, until death separates you. So you make that promise to the other person, and that, that promise then shapes, that promise is about a commitment that you will exercise into the future, and it very much shapes how you live now, doesn't it? That as you believe and trust the promise of the other It shapes what you do here. So the first thing you do is once the other person has made that promise to you is you delete Tinder from your phone, right? And if you don't know what that is, ask me afterwards and, uh, you know, I I can show you. Um, I joke. I can explain it to you. I can tell you what it is. Get rid of all the dating apps from your phone because when someone promises to love you exclusively and you to love them, you stop dating other people. You're off the market, it changes how you live in the present. So promises that tap in, that 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 shape our present behavior, are powerful because they actually hold out a particular future for us, and that's integral to who we are as human beings. Now you say, what does all that have to do with Isaiah 35 and with Advent and this Christmas season? Well, a, a great deal, because in Isaiah 35 we see that God makes three promises to his people that were incredibly relevant then and are extraordinarily relevant for us today. And if we believe the promises that God made in Isaiah 35 to Israel, and we believe that they actually are promises that he's made for us today, it has an enormous impact on how we live now because of what we believe he will accomplish for us. So what does does God promise? Well, he promises... Uh, three things and um, the first thing he promises is that I've got to make the technology work hang on a moment the first thing that he promises so that uh, he will heal creation so uh, look at this right Israel have been in exile this is written this book was this, these promises were probably written down around 580 BC Israel had been taken by the Babylonians out of Israel they're living in exile and God promises firstly that he's going to heal creation It's gonna heal all of creation. Now, I find this interesting because sometimes we can think with our chronological snobbery that we are the first generation who've discovered environmental degradation. We're the first really green, sensitive generation. Yeah, no, we're not. Yeah, we're really not. Uh, Human beings have known, as long as they've been human beings, that our relationship with the created world is fraught, It's full of difficulty. That, that there are floods and there are famines and there are earthquakes and there are uh, disastrous climatic, uh, climatic events that have a massive impact on our existence. Uh, and so here, the promise of God to Israel is, listen, I'm going to do something where the desert and the parched land will be glad, where the wilderness will rejoice and blossom, like the crocus, it will... And thanks for the explanation of that, Rolf. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. All of reality will be healed and restored. And, you know, we, one, of the, one of the animating drivers of the Green Movement, which has an enormous amount to commend it, is this deep sense that we're made to live in a beautiful garden... Where, where our enga- engagement, interaction with this beautiful garden is always just one of joy, and it provides for all our needs, and it's sustainable, and it's glorious, and it's life-giving. And of course, we, we know we don't live in that kind of garden. I mean, I don't know about your garden, but I mean, one of the signs we don't live in that kind of garden is even the gardens we have, the weeds grow quicker than the flowers, right? It's, it's, the world doesn't work the way it's meant to work. We live always on this perilous cusp of environmental disaster, of famine, of drought, of earthquake, of uh, you name it, of floods. The world will be renewed, God says. It's going to burst into bloom. It's going to rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And the, the New Testament picks this up, right? So the Apostle Paul writing in Romans 8, says all of creation groans as in childbirth, like this, the very fabric of the world is groaning because it's not working the way it's meant to be and it's great, in great pain. And the world itself groans in longing for the glorious freedom of the children of God. God promises to heal the world. And I think for those of us who are people of faith, we need to not seed environmental concerns and concerns for creation to to those in the kind of the the agnostic atheist environmental movement. Because you go, the Bible is a massively environmental document. Like God, this is God's beautiful creation. And it's messed up and it breaks his heart and he's gonna heal it one day. And we need to care for it, but we need to know that God's care for the environment massively exceeds the care of even the most radical uh, ideologically committed greens member and, I, and I'm not in any way meaning to bag out the greens I'm saying that, that environmental care and the, the world matters to God and we need to own that space and not believe the idea that somehow if you're a Christian you're actually someone who's participating in the destruction and the degradation of the environment um, of necessity so God's going to heal the world that's a good thing right isn't it good? And you're like, man, imagine living in a beautiful garden, like where it was just perfect all the time, where you could enjoy the sun but never get sunburned. Where, I don't know if you've seen this, this my favorite Simpsons episode, you probably, this might date me a little, you may not like the Simpsons at all, but, but Homer's describing or imagining the Garden of Eden before the fall, the in- eruption, the the include, incursion of sin into the world, and you know Homer in The Simpsons loves bacon, and he's having a discussion about you know how you can be a, you know could you eat animals before the fall, and and you know what Homer's vision of the healed renewed creation was? Well, it's a pig that comes up to him and stands there, and Homer can just slice off the bacon, and it doesn't hurt the pig, and the bacon just grows right back on the pig, and it's just I thought that's. That's heaven right there. You know, Homer obviously wasn't Jewish, but it's, um, it's just the world providing for all our needs effortlessly without any pain and suffering. So even the animals can feed us without dying in Homer's vision. That's what God promises, that he's going to heal the world. second thing he promises is uh, in, to, to, the, to the people here, he's going to heal uh, people. and in particular the people who are going to heal are, um, are the broken and the vulnerable and the messed up strengthen the feeble hands I love this verse steady the knees that give way say to those with fearful hearts I mean this is a this is a promise to those of us and those in our world who are just kind of beaten down by life i mean the eggs the, the israelites were in exile they'd lost everything and and they were giving up their hearts were full of fear well i they may never see my family again i may be massacred by the babylonians i may never get back to jerusalem i may have forever lost the presence of god so they're giving up their hearts are full of fear weak knees just beaten down broken damaged people opposed on every side, feeling completely alienated from God, and, at, you know, oppressed, vilified, lost. And God says, I'm going to heal you. And he says, not only this, I'm going I'm to do something in the world that I'm not just going to heal those who, who are relationally and politically and economically oppressed and beaten down spiritually. Do you know what? The eyes of the blind are going to be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame will leap like deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Now what's he saying there? God says, you know what? Whatever's wrong with you, whatever's broken in your body, and listen, our bodies have an almost endless capacity to let us down, don't they? I mean, you just, you live long enough, you go, man, they just let us down left, right, and center. And he says, in whatever way your body is letting you down, God will heal it. God will restore it. Brokenness, disease, decay will not have the final word over your life. I was thinking about this uh, while I was in America, because Russell, who I hung out with, was part of our church in Hawthorne, and he asked me about a fellow who was part of our church, and um, there was this little group of uh, folk who were part of this very old church, one of the oldest churches in Melbourne, and we sort of brought a group, brought a group of young people in to restart this church in partnership with them, and one of the, the, this group, who'd been part of this church for forever, was a wonderful Christian man called Hampton Beale, and Russell asked me how Hampton was, Now, I remembered with Hampton, he'd been the mayor of Hawthorne uh, for three terms, he'd been in local government for 40 years, he was a very prominent engineer, he was a great musician, he was charming, he was just one of those really significant public uh, individuals in that part of the city of Melbourne. But he was also increasingly riddled with arthritis. And Hampton was bright and smart and engaged and thoughtful, but his body was just letting him down at every level. And, he, and he'd say to me, you know, it would take him two hours in the mornings just to get going. And I was actually reflecting on us and thinking, I feel like that's starting to be me. You know, you get out of bed and you've got to do like half an hour of stretching just so that, you, you know, you can get to the bathroom. You know, it's like, that's, that's what happens to our bodies. And Hampton was crippled with this. And and I I read this and I think, you know, the last time I saw Hampton, he was 92, he's frail, he couldn't move his hands at all, and he's dying, he's lying in a hospital bed. And I thought, I read this and I go, the promise is, you know, Hampton's body will be restored to all its glory and then more. There's nothing that goes wrong with us that God isn't going to heal because he loves us in the totality of our beings. The promise of God is not that He's going to rescue us, take our, our spiritual immortal souls from this broken and corrupted world and let the world burn and, and we'll go and sit on clouds in heaven in some sort of beatific disembodied vision. The promise of God is that this body that you've got, he's going to make right, he's going to heal, he's going to restore, he's going to give you a new resurrection body and it's going to be glorious and wonderful. So um, that's amazing, hey? disease and death won't have the last word over our mortal bodies that's the promise and oh my goodness it's a beautiful promise and the third so god's promises he says i'm going to renew the created world and then i'm going to renew the people in it and then he says the third promise is you know what Uh, i promise that i'm going to give you all a home where you belong I'm going to bring you home. So he says it's going to be a highway there. It's going to be called the way of holiness, the way for those who walk on this. And they're going to come back to God, and they're going to enter Zion. And Zion is a metaphor for home, for a place of eternal belonging. For the Israelites who received this promise themselves, they they located Zion with, with Jerusalem, with going back to the physical promised land. But it's taken up in the rest of the Bible and it functions as a metaphor for, for the heavenly Jerusalem, for the, create, the, the renewed reality, for a place of eternal community with God in a new world. He says, I'm going to give you a home. And you know what, you know, I mean, what is a home? why is that a great promise? Well, a home is a place where you're always welcomed, right? Like imagine that. You'll never be excluded you never Home is a place where you go, where you know no, mat, no matter what kind of an idiot you've been, the doors will always be open. You'll always find someone who loves you. Home is a place of security, where you go no matter how terrifying and scary and broken and damaging the world is out there. When you come home, you get protection. You get a roof over your head and walls to keep up bad things. A home is a place where you can be who you are with complete utter vulnerability and transparency, right? Like, uh, when you come to church, you can't be that. Like, you've all got your clothes on, which is a really good thing. And some of you've got makeup on, and we've most of us brushed our teeth, and we've most of us brushed our hair, and, you know. But when you're at home, you don't have to worry about people seeing you in various states of undress, and without your hair done and with your teeth unbrushed and just seeing you as you are, that's home. Where you just, with all your glorious ordinariness, you are welcomed and accepted and embraced and never rejected. And you're perfectly safe and you're perfectly secure. That's home. And God says, you know what? I'll make a home for you. I'm going to make a place like that. It's called Zion. It's called the new Jerusalem. It's called the new creation. It's going to be a place just like that for you. Huh. Isn't that, that's a great promise, right? That's a great promise. Now, uh, how's God going to, how's he going to come through on these promises? How's he going to do this? it's important right and and what we see here in this and this is why it's such a it's a in the in the church's uh, uh lectionary or set readings for this time of year this is one of the the lectionary readings for advent because advent comes from the latin word adventus which means to come And this time of year, we think about the coming of God into our world in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and the coming of God in the person of his son Jesus that still lies ahead of us, and that's how God is going to honor and keep and fulfill these promises, by coming to us. It's God's own presence that heals creation. Look at this. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. How does God heal the world? By coming to the world, by suffusing it with his glory, by healing it with his word and his touch and his presence. That's how he heals creation. That's amazing, right? Think about it in the life of Jesus. How did Jesus engage with the created world? Well, famous example in Mark chapter 4. He's out on a sea and there's a great storm comes up in the Sea of Galilee. And what does he do? He just speaks the word and the storm abates and the waves calm down. And He has complete authority and control just by his presence over all of created reality. That's what God does. He doesn't, he doesn't look down on the world and go, this is something I don't really want to be part of. This is a, I'll just step away and rescue people out of it. He says, no, I'm going to come into this world. And it's God's presence itself that brings healing. Now, you know, obviously, that, that the world's still messed up, right? So Jesus' first coming didn't fix everything. <laughs> it started the healing, but that's why the Bible says there's a second coming. When God will finally come and his presence will be located fully and forever in this created world in an, uh, in an, an unmediated, direct, healing, glorious way. That's, we look forward to that when Jesus returns to heal by his presence. It's, that's, and how does, how does God heal us? Well, he heals us by coming to us. Again, uh, this is it. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. Yeah, that's God comes to us, and He comes to us. Now, this is a little—you know—this doesn't often come into Christmas cards, right? How does He come? He comes with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't sound very good, does it? Well, it only doesn't sound very good to those because I suspect most of us haven't been on the receiving end of extraordinarily oppressive injustice and violence that has gone unpunished in an earthly sense. But if you're an Israelite and you're in captivity and, and, you know, it looks like the Babylonians are going to win and there's no hope for you and evil has triumphed, then it's incredibly good news that God's salvation will mean that all injustice will be dealt with. Another way of putting this is god's going to heal us by coming into our lives and into our world and actually doing away with everything that would harm or diminish or destroy us that's what he's like so he's going to do away with disease he's going to do away with the aging process like that's pretty cool right imagine only ever getting better and more glorious mentally and spiritually and physically, and for that process to go on forever. That would be extraordinary, right? And God is going to defeat, he's going to come with vengeance against the aging process that robs us of our dignity and in the end robs us of our lives. That's what God's going to do. He's going to come and defeat the aging process. Like, hallelujah, that's great. I never thought I'd be that excited about this, but you know, I'm increasingly excited about this. God's going to defeat our people who do us evil. There's going to be no more uh, interpersonal violence or oppression or injustice. He's going to do that. No, and, and every wrong will be righted. And God's ultimate home is defined by his presence. God will be there The Lord has rescued and will return. And they're going to enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Now, um, you go, okay, great. Mark, you've painted a lovely picture of God's promises and now you've said this is how he's going to do it, by coming to us. Uh, Here's a question. Who are these promises for? Well, let, let me ask it another way do you think you are worthy are you worthy of receiving these promises well let me ask it another way who does God make these promises to right uh, well let me ask it even another way in a, in a secular way who are the people who will receive the good life who are the people who are who are worthy who are good people, who are, who are the people who are on a path to heaven, right? That's really important. Like, what is it, for you and me, like today, who gets all these benefits? So there's a few answers that are given, right? The most common one, which you would quite possibly expect in churches, and the one we often live out, even unconsciously, is is the people who receive these promises, the people who are going to receive the healing of God, are good people, moral people, and religious people. We're the good white Anglicans. We come to church. We do and say the right things, at least for an hour and a half on a Sunday. You know? We're we're the ones who are worthy to receive these promises, and we get these promises because God loves religious people. Really? Really? Hmm. Yeah, no. No, 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 no. Look, uh, look what it says. The the people who there's a highway. It's going to be called the way of holiness. Um, and it'll be for those who walk on the way. So who walks on the way of holiness? You know, it can't really be good people or religious people or moral people or or, or Anglican people because. Look, I've been leading churches for twenty-five years. I've never met anyone in the church who could walk on the way of holiness by themselves. Have you? I'm not worthy. I mean, religion's not going to keep me on the way of holiness, right? I mean, we're a mess, right? I don't know if you've realized this, but and if we we don't we don't get these blessings from God because of what we. Bring. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go on about it. Will not go about on it. That's us. We're like we're all we're all we're all a mess. So it's not it's not the religious people who get it. Nor is it, and and our culture has ways of us answering this. Nor is it the good people in the terms of our culture. Those who are authentic, who are sincere, who are self-actualized. Because we're all a mess. I, I, the Bible's so honest. And the, the more I go on in life, the more I go, yeah, I just see, I see that so truly. Even, even our best efforts are shot through with perverse motives and selfishness and fear and pride. So, so who gets the benefits, right? Who gets to be with God? Who gets to be healed? Well, look at this, hey? Look at this. Only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. The redeemed? Well, really significant to understand this concept of redemption. In the Old Testament, you had this idea of a kinsman redeemer. In the Hebrew, it's a goel. And a goel was a... What what could happen was if you got yourself into terrible difficulty financially, you could sell yourself into slavery to pay off your debts. You could say, I'm indebted to you, I can never pay it off, but I'll work for you for free for seven years, or ten years, or twenty years, and eventually I'll pay off my debts. Now, the Bible's always known that slavery is a terrible thing, so provided a mechanism for a a family member of yours could be your redeemer. A family member could pay the price of your debt to your uh, creditor and set you free. That was a kinsman redeemer, a goel. And God says, guess what? Uh, Those whom I set free, those whom I redeem, those for whom I am their kinsman redeemer, they're the ones who get all these promises. So that is good news, right? Well, actually, it's actually quite affronting, if you think about it, because it says you and I are captives, we are slaves, And the only hope we have is for God to set us free from slavery. The only people who get on to the highway of holiness that leads us home to a place of complete healing are those who have been in captivity in slavery and whom God has drawn out of that slavery, not because they're good or moral or religious, but because he has loved them. And that is very humbling because we don't like to think of ourselves as slaves. But let me ask you this. You know? I mean, what are, you, what are you and I captive to? Well, we're captive to anything that we're trusting to make our lives work, to give us life. We've become captive to, gosh, people's approval. If you can't say no to what people want of you, you're, you're a slave to what people think of you. If you you believe that it's your own moral efforts that will actually make you worthy enough for God's love, you actually become captive to a whole system of self improvement and religion and morality. And it kills you. You can become captive to pursuing a life of personal peace and affluence. That, above all else, even if you dress it up with religion, what drives you, what holds your heart is that, that you've got to have a life where you're at peace and you've got to have a life where you're affluent. And and the Bible says, no, you're actually a slave to those things. You think you're free, but you're a slave. We can become slaves to our personal self-expression. The philosophical term that floods through all of this is voluntarism, that it's my choice, my self-expression, my will that shapes all of reality, and I'm going to resist anyone telling me what to do. And the Bible says, no, you're actually a slave when you live for yourself like that. And God says, you know what, I'm going to redeem you not because you're good, not because you deserve it, not because you're moral. And that's what Christmas is about, right? Christmas is God coming to us in his son Jesus as our goel, as our kinsman redeemer, to come and set us free from the self-imposed slavery and captivity, the mess we've got ourselves into. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. God is going to take you home. He's going to heal you. And he's going to give you a place of belonging and a totally renewed creation, not because you and I deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we're worth it, but because he loves you. And in his son Jesus, he has come to pay the price, to set you free from captivity, to defeat all those things and those forces that would hold you back. And he said, I've come and I've rescued you and I've redeemed you. So now now just hang on to me. So how does that change us? Well, it says, trust Jesus. Trust him with your present because you know that he's promised you this future and the future promises are not, they're not grounded in you or me, which is an incredible relief. Like, ah, this future is mine even when I stuff up. Right? So, like, I, I, let me tell you one thing. Uh, no matter how hard you try, you'll never be worthy of this future. But that's good news, because like, that's grace. That's God saying, I just love you, I've redeemed you, I've set you free, I've done everything necessary for you. So what does that mean? That infuses, I, I'm going to end with this, I just, that should infuse our lives with singing and everlasting joy and gladness. Like, if that's the future, and God has promised this for us, then he says, the life I want for you now is a life where you are overtaken with gladness and joy. I just think that's important this Christmas. Like, it doesn't matter what kind of a crappy year you've had, and some of us have had really crappy years, It doesn't matter what state your physical health is in, and some of us are more rapidly declining than others. It doesn't matter how miserable we might think the whole world is. Do you know what? If these promises are true, then we're going to be overtaken with gladness and joy, and that should characterize our lives. We, the people of God, should be the most joyful people on the planet, not because of anything in us, but because of what he has done for us. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Like they're just temporary. That like you feel the force of that? You need to. I need to. This, this troubled life all the pain and brokenness of this world, it's all going to flee away. So don't let it define you now and don't let it define your response to each other and your response to this world and your response to God because it's all passing away and what will remain is everlasting joy. I don't know. I'm sure on the inside, your hearts are somersaulting with joy and it's just the humidity and the heat that is making it hard for that inner joy to come out. But oh my goodness, friends. This is, ex- this is an extraordinary set of promises. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, this Christmas, help us to actually believe these promises of yours. Help, help our belief and our trust in these promises to fill us with gladness and joy. And Lord, we long for the day when sorrow and sighing will flee away and we and all your creation will be fully renewed, fully healed, and fully restored. So fill us with joy as a church this Christmas. Drive out the sorrow and the sighing. And may your presence dwell afresh with us, as we enter into this great season of Advent. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.